Fall is here, there's a chill in the air, and the Anomaly Film Festival is right around the corner. It's November 8th through the 12th at the Little Theater in Rochester, New York. Check it out at AnomalyFilmFest.com. It's the fifth year of showing the best in independent genre films, action, sci-fi, horror, dark comedy, and really whatever else that you wouldn't get a chance to see on the big screen. It's Anomaly Film Fest at the Little Theater, November 8th through 12th, AnomalyFilmFest.com. Masters of Couch Potato Style, Punches and Popcorn. All right, welcome back, Punches and Popcorn family. Tonight we are joined by two very special guests, authors of the book These Fists Break Bricks, uh, Chris Pojali and Grady Hendricks. So, uh, Chris, Grady, you want to say hi to our family here? Hello, Punches and Popcorn family. How y'all doing? This is Grady. That was Chris. <laughs> well, we're really excited for you guys to join us again. We love this book. Uh, we kind of think of these fist break bricks as like our Bible for everything that we love and do with this show. So we are very honored to have you here with us. And I understand so when we talked to Chris and Grady, we had the opportunity to meet them at the Syracuse Old School Kung Fu Festival a couple months ago that we talked about in a previous episode. Um, you know, and they... Uh, told us they had this really interesting idea uh, that they wanted to talk about and introduced us to some movies that I think for all of us at Punches and Popcorn, these are pretty new for us. So uh, we're really excited. Uh, Chris and Grady, you guys want to jump into it and share this awesome story with our listeners here? Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, just to, just because to, we want to talk tonight about uh, a couple of people. One of them is Ron Van Cleef. And I think before we talk about who Ron Van Cleef we have to talk about why Ron Van Cleef. And, um, you know, these fist break books is about Kung Fu movies coming to America. And that started really in 73. And one reason this book took us forever to write is we kept going down these rabbit holes or we kept finding people that we knew a little about, but suddenly we would find so much more information. And they became from just sort of these random names doing like a guest appearance on the love boat. We realized they were really essential people in this story. And so I just want to set the stage a little bit, which is that before 73 in movies, Kung Fu really didn't exist in America. It was, it was on TV. There'd been the Kung Fu TV show and things like that, but really Kung Fu movies didn't exist. a lot of karate, but that, it wasn't huge. And in 73, uh, Five Fingers of Death came out, the Shaw Brothers movie that came to the States. It became a huge hit and sort of kicked off this avalanche. And after that, it was Jimmy Wong Yu movies, Angela Mao, Bruce Lee's earlier movies that have been dubbed into English. And everything was kind of building in 1973 to August when Enter the Dragon was going to come out, which was Bruce Lee, Jim Kelly, John Saxon. It was a big Warner Brothers co-production with Golden Harvest. Um, and everyone was going to see these movies. It, they, were, they were hugely popular. And in July, Bruce Lee died. And then in August, Into the Dragon came out. It was a big, big hit, huge cultural touchstone. And then the craze kind of ended. Um, a few years earlier, there'd been sort of the porno chic boom when like these hard X movies like Deep Throat and Behind the Green, Green Door became popular. And like suddenly like Sammy Davis Jr. was going and like limos were pulling up outside porno <laughs> theaters and couples were going. And it was the hip thing to do until all of a sudden it wasn't. And the Kung Fu moment passed 
almost as quickly. It's it's sort of peak limelight moment. Um, and by the end of 73, this one independent director, uh, producer, sorry, distributor, sorry, uh, that we're going to talk about more, Sarah from Care Alexis, he said, you know, by the end of 73, it was like real trash because producers and distributors were grabbing anything they could from Hong Kong or the Philippines. And it wasn't always good. They were just, if it wasn't nailed down, it had kicking in it. They were grabbing it. And so audiences got burned a lot in the US. And by the end of 73, really only black audiences and non-white audiences were still super loyal to these movies. Sort of for the white audience, I mean, there was some popularity still, but it kind of passed. Um, and of course, yeah. one of the big reasons non-white audiences love these movies is because uh, they were had non-white casts. Um, and so... Yeah. So we get to the end of 73 and, and the trend's going and that sets us up for, for the next thing to happen, which Chris will take, which is what Seraphim Carol Alexis was doing next. Well, uh, Seraphim had uh, released the, the second of the martial arts movies to right. come out of Hong Kong, uh, the second Shaw Brothers movie, uh, I should add. Um, and he, he had gone to a screening of Five Fingers of Death uh, which was the, the first big one uh, Warner Brothers had released. It was a Shaw Brothers production. And uh, Seraphim had gone to see it in Boston at the Savoy Theater on April 1st, 1973. And he was just blown away by this. And he knew it was going to be uh, the, the next big thing. Uh, it, it had been out for a couple of weeks at that point and was already bringing in a lot of money. And just the, the way the audience reacted to this movie. He just knew that it, this was going to be something really big. And, and he wanted to have the second one of these films. So like the next day he jumped on an airplane and went to Hong Kong and, you know, got a meeting with the Shaw brothers and came back. I mean, there, there's a, a long story about this uh, that, that we, uh, we go into in the book, but he got the, uh, the second Shaw brothers movie to be released in the U.S., uh, and he, he had it in theaters exactly three weeks later, after seeing it in Boston. Wow! Uh, yeah, April twenty second. Duel of the Iron <laughs> Fist. Duel, Duel of the Iron Fist opened in Chicago three weeks later on Easter Sunday, April twenty second, and uh, yeah. <clears throat> he. Uh, it, it's it's pretty much the second movie. I mean the. Uh, the Bruce Lee movie Fists of Fury was doing some pre-release screenings in Texas and Oklahoma and North Carolina, but the national date for that movie is April 28th. Um, so technically, yeah, Seraphim had the, the second movie out. Mm -hmm. That is some incredible yeah. foresight. Yeah. Go out and do that. And <laughs> yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. In three weeks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I yeah. saw it the story you tell in the book is just is fantastic about him like going to this sunday show and then mm -hmm. like hopping on the next plane he can find right and like and there's a whole thing about like how he picked a bad flight for it yeah and then, and then yeah. right he got he got to hong kong and just like pulled open the phone book and was like oh here's shaw studios i'm gonna call him and run run santa santa limo and uh, yep. i love like, i was just cackling through that like I, it's such a like cowboy way to make all this happen <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and there's there's so much more to the story too i mean they, they didn't give him the soundtrack so he oh. you know, he got back to the u.s and discovered they had just picture negative 
and no soundtrack. <laughs> so he had to pull the soundtrack yes. off the print that they sent him, you know, sent him with uh, and and have that match to the. Yeah. So it, it's. And, and just to clarify, they didn't give him the soundtrack because they wanted to charge him more money for it. <laughs> right. Mm, of course. <laughs> Gotta love so. film distribution. It's always that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, always on the up and up. <laughs> it's like they, they forgot oh, that they great. also sent him home with a with a print. So <laughs> wouldn't make that mistake again. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, and then about a year later, uh, when uh, you know he's he noticed that well actually he noticed before the end of 1973 that the audiences really the most loyal audiences for these movies were African American and Hispanic and and Asian you know non-white audiences that were just returning to these movies and so he started using uh, a DJ by the name of Jerry Bledsoe who narrates the super weapon. And he also does some of the narration in uh, death promise at the beginning. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, uh, Seraphim- oh, is, he, is he that voiceover? The Right. <laughs> yeah. I love that voiceover. Yeah. His, his oh, name was uh, Jerry Bledsoe and he was a DJ for WWRL in New York, which was a, a R and B station. And he, he also hosted a, a show on channel 11 called soul alive which was like the new york area's uh soul train uh, and, and he had uh, he also was involved with um ellis hazelip's show soul in the late 60s and early 70s which was a big um ta- uh like a variety show for african americans um and and he was known as jerry b he was the announcer but uh, uh seraphim hired him to do all the trailers for his movies and i think beginning with the karate killer and and then any narration that he needed so like the eagle shadow uh jerry b does the narration at the beginning of that and he did the narration for the trailers uh for all of them and so that was really the first step to cater uh to the urban audiences and then he said you know what i i really need to uh to introduce an african-american kung fu star to these movies because I'm, I'm sure he was looking at you know the jim kelly movies that were starting to come out um black bell jones which didn't do that well but three the hard way was a hit and you know they had a uh warner brothers and fred weintraub paul heller had a contract for three movies with jim kelly so uh you know wouldn't be a bad idea to to have your own uh black kung fu star so uh, is he, at this point oh sorry to at this point oh. was he making a just uh, transition from distribution to actual production yes yeah he okay. he uh he met a, a gentleman named uh yan yan b bao i think was his name um mm-hmm. who was uh, who owned a company called yang z films but i'm sorry ban yi ban yi mm-hmm. yao uh he he had a company called yang z film and uh mm-hmm. he had made some of the movies that seraphim distributed like the karate killer um, so some some of the people gotcha. who are in the Karate Killer are also in the Black Dragon and, and Black Dragon's Revenge, like uh, Jason Pai Pao and um, uh, uh, yeah. the the villain uh, who's also the villain in in uh, the spoiler, but the, the villain in Death Promise is uh, another actor <laughs> yes, who's in all yeah. of those. Yeah, yeah. Thompson Thompson <laughs> K Cow, I think, is his name. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. so yeah so, so seraphim had auditions uh for 
for a black martial artist. And can I just interject for a second? You know, this was not considered a smart move. I mean, his business partners were like, you're insane. And I think, isn't this when he sort of broke up with them, Chris? He did. Yep. Yeah. And it was, yeah. It was over. I mean, he, he wasn't happy with, right. with that but, anyway, that relationship. But, you know, Seraphim mm-hmm. felt like he could see the future. And one of the great thing about these independent distributors is they really went by their gut, you know, like I'm going to go get one of these yeah. movies and show it. I'm going to, you know, find a black martial artist to be. And, you know, and at this point, everyone was looking for the next Bruce Lee because Bruce Lee's movies made bank, but he's dead. And so there were all kinds of imitators and stuff, but they were largely Chinese and Korean. Um, so this was not a no brainer idea. You know, I mean, yes, there was Jim Kelly, but, you know, this was not smart. And so they had these auditions and hundreds how many would say like 200 people chris or something something like that yeah and <laughs> yeah it was, it was all day <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. but so at a certain point um ron van cleef walks in and ron was um he'd been a marine um he was from new york but he'd been a marine big guy i mean built like a brick shit house he's huge yeah and um he had studied <laughs> yeah. karate when he was in the service and um he had he was a transit cop he was a bouncer but what really made him famous was he did these shows all over new york and chris you know more about these than i do if you want to talk about the shows a little bit right he he would turn up in some of the parks like central park or washington square park with some of his students and he would cut fruit and vegetables like usually he'd have to have his students hold like a carrot under their chin and he'd slice it. It's be standing up or, you know, laying on their backs and, and he would, he would slice up the, uh, the carrots with the, you know, the katana and uh, another, another person that we, so uh, he's, we, mm-hmm. what's that? Uh, so basically he's like the first fruit ninja, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Well done. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, but yeah, I mean, he, you go ahead, Chris. Oh no, no, he he would just he would do these shows around, and also on stage, he uh, he would uh, appear on stage doing martial arts. So he, there was a, it wasn't off Broadway, but there was a, a show that played around New York, um, where uh, where he they would pe- people would do different martial arts on stage. Yeah, and you know he'd gotten the idea because he was sort of drifting before he started doing these performances, and he got the idea to do. He was watching the boxer from Shantung down at the Music Palace, which turned out to be the last Chinatown theater left in North America. It closed, I think, in two thousand. Wow. Um, wow. And he was like, mm. I could do this. He got a little stunt training from this guy who was like Frank Sinatra's stand-in. He did some stunts in Shaft, but yeah, these mm. shows were really what he did. And he also was a teacher. Um, and he would teach in open door, what were called open door dojos, which were sort of like, you know, above board. And then he'd teach in closed door dojos, which were like in the basements of supermarkets, in loading docks. Uh, one was in like the basement of the Empire State Building, where it was full contact. And he'd use profanity. And, you know, it was sort of like the R-rated version of the classes. Um, but so he goes to this audition and blows Seraphim away. And Seraphim puts him in a movie, uh, one of these uh, Yangshi films he's making. And he, but but he's sorting out his legal difficulties with his partners he's broken up with. So he stays in New York and sends Sarah, uh, Ron over to Hong Kong. Um, and the problem is these Hong Kong producers 
they have to make a movie where the Chinese guy's the hero because it's for a largely Chinese and Asian audience. And Seraphim wants Ron to be the hero. And so the movie comes back. And I think, Chris, what is it? It's like Ron's like in 14 minutes of the film or something. Yeah, I mean, so, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but but I mean, he's great. He's got a lot of screen presence. Um, yeah, and what yeah. was it called? I can't remember what the actual title was. Was it Tough Guy? I think. Yes. Was, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Tough Guy yeah. was the. <laughs> and yeah. then, right, he just redubbed it. Black Dragon put him on the poster, right? Yeah. Exactly. You yeah. know, uh, Ron Van Cleef, seventh degree black belt, four time world karate champion. <laughs> you know, he's the new superstar, and um, in the movie cleans up i mean chris you can talk about its release yeah. better than i can yeah it, it was it was a big hit i mean it, it played uh all, all over all the big cities and and you know a, any every city really i mean it, it uh seraphim's movies uh played like we did the show in syracuse uh at the palace uh there was a theater downtown it's still there it's called the landmark theater now but at the time it was a lowe's theater and you know lowe's had all these movie palaces around the country and they would show anything uh the, the there was a lowe's theater in buffalo that got in trouble with um with the fbi for showing hardcore porn and <laughs> it was the the, the the lowe's theater chain was the one theater chain that would run the x-rated version of the street fighter and you know mm-hmm. when that came out, so uh, after yep. it played, after it played all the Lowe's theaters, it was then cut for an R rating, and it went out to the other theaters. So you know the Black Dragon and uh, uh, Seraphim's other movies, Duel of the Iron Fist, uh, The Karate Killer from China with Death, those all played uh, at that downtown theater in Syracuse, the Lowe's State, and you know they would make the rounds to uh, all the other Lowe's theaters. Uh, I forgot it had been made something like $73,000 in Detroit. Um, I forgot how many weeks it was out, but um, yeah, it, it ended up making uh, a few million dollars, I think. Sarah. Yeah. Um, like, and and like, it was, it was difficult to, uh, it was difficult to track some of these independent films because uh, some of the distributors like Seraphim wouldn't report the, uh, the rentals at the end of the year. So, <laughs> so a, a lot of the companies would because the, they, they want to show off and, and get more play dates. But um, yeah, I mean, if you're getting the play dates anyway, because the exhibitors want the movie, why, why let everybody know how exactly how much money you're bringing back in? But uh, yeah, I think he, I think he brought back in a, uh, probably two or $3 million, right? Six. I thought uh, we figured out it was yeah. six. Yeah. And, wow. you know, in the movie, the new it was out. I mean, the New Yorker did a piece on it mm-hmm. like um, that Seraphim's really was never happy with because he felt yeah. like they were patronizing. Um, and they are. But it's the New Yorker. <laughs> um, and people like, you know, right. like Michael Jai White, he describes seeing the Black Dragon and just being like, you know, this is a black guy in Hong Kong. He was like, to me, it was like seeing a black man on the moon. He was yeah. like, all of a sudden, the world got bigger like this was possible um you know it wasn't a big studio movie it was just you know it felt achievable so i mean this was such a moment and ron really worked ron i mean he had a couple other movies coming out after this uh i think one in 75 and one in 76 and like 
he would get, you know, he would get in a car and just go from theater to theater doing these pre-shows, signing autographs. He was a celebrity and he was a workhorse, man. He got out there. He was doing, I mean, one of his students was telling us that they did a show before one of the screenings and the student did a flip and broke his ankle. And he was like, I knew I couldn't <laughs> break form. And I just kept working on a broken ankle. And like, and, wow. and you know, but that was the kind of discipline Ron expected. And um, this guy really had his eye, you know, on bigger things. Um, and so right. I don't know if you want to talk a little about his, his movies after that, Chris. I mean, I, to, to me, I really am excited to get to Charles, but I know yep. there's other mm -hmm. stuff to stop out on the way. Well, I mean, the, the most the most notable one he did right after was uh, a Filipino movie called The Bamboo Trap with Leo Fong. But mm -hmm. I mean, that that's out there and, and it's it's under that title. So you know, people can find it on YouTube, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but really, the, the next big one he did were the, the two, the. The, the two with Charles Bonet, the Super yeah. Weapon and Black Dragon's Revenge. Yeah, so Charles had a pretty similar background to Ron. He was ex-military. He'd uh, been he'd done a couple of sur tours in Vietnam. He did uh, he was stationed in Okinawa where he took up karate. Um, and and you know and he had started training in a park. Uh, before, you know, he went over, he sort of like, he grew up in what's called San Juan Hill, which was torn down to build Lincoln Center. Um, and, and his family was completely displaced. That was, you know, that was the thing where Robert Moses, the big city architect was like, oh, we'll rehouse all uh, these families. And then yeah. he never did. Um, and, right. you know, well, Charles, and I uh, think you pointed out in the book. Oh, sorry, Grady, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, just that uh, the San Juan neighborhood is where West Side Story is set. Yeah. And ah. actually, when you watch the I Robert the Wise version, like you could see some of that. Yeah. Well, not just you could see it. You could see it being torn down. Like the piles of rubble in the street are like Charles and other families' homes being ripped down in progress. Um, <sighs> and so Charles, you know, he would he learned sort of bits and pieces of martial arts here and there. Um, you know, the police athletic league and the Y. And then he started studying, but he really practiced in the park outdoors. He met another guy at the party. They practiced in the snow. They practiced in the rain. But suddenly some super gave him a basement to practice in. It was like, he was like, I was scared to go down in there at first. It was like full of rats. Um, and then he, he went into the service and he- Foreshadowing. You know, yeah. <laughs> and he went to the service and went to Okinawa and really busted his ass. And he came back and he was, you know, he opened what was this notorious dojo called the Bronx, Bronx Budokai, which was in the South Bronx. And it was tough. And um, and the world of martial arts in New York City was a really unique universe back then. I mean, people would come to train with different dojos and you put that train in quotes because what it meant they were going to challenge you. And you'd have enforcers in the dojo because they'd always want to, you know, <laughs> challenge the teacher. But the teacher, you know, would basically didn't want to get bust, his jaw busted. So he'd have yeah. students. So it was this really right. wild world. You'd have to like ask permission before opening a dojo in different neighborhoods. And 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 Charles <laughs> really carved out a place for himself. And he and he and Ron were both in super weapons, right, Chris? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. So so and talk a little about super weapons. I think it, I think it's an important movie and. And I don't know how to place it in quite the right context. Well, after producing the uh, the Black Dragon and the Black Dragon's Revenge, uh, well, actually, uh, 
Super Weapon was done before the Black Dragon's Revenge, but released after it. Uh, Seraphim wanted to do a, a documentary on martial arts. He thought that would be uh, a really successful and that audiences would be interested in seeing uh, something like that. It, it, it was not, I mean, it was, it did okay in some cities, but I, I think it underperformed on a whole and, and Seraphim was disappointed by that, but it, it was uh, now, you know, 40 something years later, 45 years later, it, it's a really interesting time capsule, I think, because uh, you get to see a lot of the major martial artists from the New York area in action. And also, yeah. and can I just jump in for a sec? You sure. know, one of the things that Seraphim said about it that I think is really interesting is he was like, he saw these guys working on the sets and stuff, and he thought it was amazing what they could actually physically do. And he said, if I find this amazing, audiences are going to see it. And they didn't. And he yeah. was pretty soured on it. I mean, he was like, you know, mm -hmm. they just want to see the fantasy. They don't want to see the real thing. And for him, the real thing was jaw dropping. Yeah, yeah. and, and, yeah. and oh, it, yeah. it is. I, I, I yeah. really like the super weapon. I've seen yeah. it a few times. And just like, like, I really like that segment with um, Frank D. Felice where he's getting chopped and that where the students are chopping. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's mind blowing. I watched that twice because I just couldn't believe it. You're yeah. with, uh, Tom LaPuppet, who's um, that's his nickname. Uh, I'm for, Thomas Carroll, I think is his real name, but they called him the puppet, Tom LaPuppet. Uh, where he's kicking the boards in half in midair. The students are throwing the, the boards at oh, him. Yeah. And, yeah, and and uh, also the, uh, I'm forgetting the teacher's name. Um, Serengano, uh, I think is his name. Pete Serengano. Uh, mm. His student, Bob Long, is he's throwing him around. And Bob Long is the guy who's in Death Promise, who's shrieking at the end. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it's good to see him in something else. And uh, and Wilfredo Roldan <laughs> is in it. And and he's in he's in a lot of those New York movies because he's in Velvet Smooth and Force Four. Um, yeah, it, it's it's just really interesting. Frank Ruiz. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's and it. It's just the right length. My uh, my only problem with it is that I think to make it 78 minutes. Uh, they throw in those trailers in the middle of the movie. Um, <laughs> so, which, oh yeah, I wondered about. That. I was like, yeah. this feels very grindhouse. -y yeah, there. like yeah, like tired. all of a sudden. Wait, is this supposed? We ran out of stuff. Right. Well, then I was. Yeah. Well, then I was. Wa I think I was watching it on Tubi, where you know they put mm -hmm. in the ads. Any like they right. will. So I was like, wait, is this a, is this a movie or is this an ad? I don't know what's happening right now. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and just to say something, you know, just because you're talking about Thomas the Puppet, Chris, mm -hmm. you know. Thomas the Puppet came out of the Tong Dojo, which was this really infamous school out in Flatbush run by this guy, George Cofield, who was a black martial artist. And George Cofield trained a lot of champions, but he was a really messed up guy. I mean, he was like students had a real love-hate emphasis on the hate relationship with him. I mean, he'd whack him with a stick. He was really <laughs> demanding. And like the students understood that was the bargain, yeah. right? They would embrace that discipline but one thing that's important to point out is these martial arts they were a lot of them were some damaged guys they'd been in combat they'd been in vietnam this was not an era of healing and ptsd i don't even think was invented yet as a term 
Um, mm -hmm. The government mm -hmm. was still denying Agent Orange existed, you know, or had any bad effects. Right. Like this was a really, and so a lot of these guys embraced the discipline and also the, the sort of fightiness of martial arts because they had those impulses and it was somewhere to channel them that was productive. But, you know, I mean, um, some of these guys' students were like, you know, they were taking us into situations like some of these big tournaments, like the, uh, the um, what is it? The World of the Orient? I can never remember, Chris. Oh, um, uh, Oriental World of Martial Arts? Yeah, of self-defense. Of self-defense, uh, yeah. okay. Yeah, uh, but the or Aaron Banks says Oriental World self-defense at Madison Square Gardens. And you see that in Enter the uh, Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. But like, they were like, uh, we were around guys who were vets, who had people who had mental problems, people who had issues and were like self-medicating with drugs and alcohol sometimes. And they were like, this wasn't where they should have been taking 13 year old kids. So this world was really, yeah, it was a, this world Ooh. saved people. This world broke people. This was a weird alternate universe of, of people who wow. weren't just drawn to martial arts because it looked cool. Some of them were drawn to it because they felt like it was the only chance they had of saving their lives, you know, from like a mental health perspective. Wow. So, anyways, and so super weapons, I think, is such an amazing thing to sort of see. And, and then into the uh, Fist of Your Touch of Death, just to see a touch, a little bit of that world in real life. Yeah, right. So Seraphim saw Charles in super weapon. And he's like, well, if I've got the Black Dragon, I need the Puerto Rican Panther. And he right. teamed, and Charles and Ron were friends, and he teamed them up. Um, to go to Hong Kong and make, oh God, Chris, I'm losing the name, help me. Oh, well, it was uh, The Death of Bruce Lee or yes. The Black Dragon's Revenge was the other title in, yep. in the US. And it had, um, actually it was also known as Black Game of Death, I think uh, it was released at one really? point as, yeah, in the US. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so in that movie, I mean, I, I don't know, Chris, where are you on it? Cause I, I kind of, it's my favorite thing from, from the two of them. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I like it a lot. I mean, I, I like the Black Dragon also. Admittedly, it's a you know big boss ripoff, but um, but yeah, I, I like a lot of that. But yeah, the 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 death of Bruce Lee is is something else, and a lot of it is because of their the interplay. They're, yeah, yeah, they have great right. chemistry together. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and I love really the do. fact. I love the fact that, I mean, so basically if anyone's curious, the plot is craziness. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's Ron, wild. <laughs> the yeah. black dragon gets brought to Hong Kong to investigate the death of Bruce Lee. But like Charles plays this secret agent named Charlie Woodcock. And, and Ron plays himself, right? <laughs> yeah, Ron plays yeah. Ron. He walks around yeah. in this shirt that says Ronnie Van like, Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Well, and compared to Black Dragon, where he walks around without a shirt the entire movie. Exactly. Without his voice, also. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and also, um, uh, you know, he, um, Charles also walks around with pantyhose over his head for a significant portion yeah. of the movie. Um, <laughs> and and just fun fact, the, the, the female lead in it is Yun Q, who would wind yeah. up playing the uh, landlady in Stephen Chow's Kung Fu Hustle. Hustle you know, the, yes. the tough old landlady who always has a cigarette yes. sticking oh, out of her mouth. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So Dom pointed that out to us. And I, and that's, she's like one of my favorite characters in like oh, all she's of great. movies. Yeah. But yeah. I was, I, I was floored by that. That's, and she was a Bond girl too, I think, right? Oh, she, she was, was really? Gun. Oh, I wow. I didn't know so. that. 
Oh yeah, that's why. Well, I'm stealing notes from Dom here, so Dom is always <laughs> with us, whether he's in person or not. But or in uh, yeah, so that was really cool. And now she was not the snake thrower, right? She was was she a different I, character? No, she was I like on think... their team, right? Yeah, she, she was, was the, the good, one that was, she on was their the love team. interest. She was yeah. the good one, right? That's yeah. right, right, right. Because I really like the snake thrower. That was yeah. I just like that how nonchalant really she was like, about kind it. Kind of villain, right? She wouldn't oh, even yeah. like, t- she'd toss, she wouldn't throw. She'd be like, <laughs> and then it would wrap around their neck and choke them out or yeah, slowly right. bite Ron. <laughs> well, it it kind of like when that came in and Black Dragon's Revenge, it kind of reminded me of King Boxer in that like, you kind of have a standard guys go around, get into fights, get into fights. Then there's just like a switch where it just goes into like overdrive with craziness. Yeah. And like where the guy gets his eyes gouged mm-hmm. out. Yes. And then she's throwing snakes. And then there's the blowgun. <laughs> and uh, like all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, yeah. whoa. Then Ron Van Cleef is like, like basically ripping a guy's head off at the end. And that was terrific. It just, well, it you gets, know, it's it gets funny. wild. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I really feel like um, there's, a, there's a ratio here. Hong Kong kung fu movies of this era, like ones actually made in Hong Kong, like by, by Hong Kong yeah. directors and producers, I always feel like they're meant to be one hour movies, but they gotta be 90 minutes. Yeah. So for me, the first 30 minutes, I'm always like, okay, okay. And then at about minute 25 or 30, all of a sudden the plot yeah. kicks in, the characters and the characters meet and things kick off. Yeah. In American kung fu movies from this era, I feel like it's an inverse ratio where they're really making a 30-minute movie, but they are like a 35-minute movie, but they got to fill 90 <laughs> minutes. So it's like usually not until minute 50 that an American kung fu movie yeah, kicks yeah, off. Yeah. And then you've got 35 <laughs> or 40 minutes of really amazing stuff. And that's, yeah, right, and that's right, totally right, right. this movie. It's, yeah. it's the classic drive-in <laughs> exploitation thing where you just have to stretch it out enough because you know you have 30 minutes that everybody's going to want to watch, but it's people walking around and talking for that first 50. And you can make a great trailer from that, too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Right. Also, right. Um, with, with this movie, this, uh, this was the one I'm pretty sure, yeah, it has to be. The, this is the one where J- Jason Paipal, who had been the lead in The Black Dragon, he started playing around with Seraphim. Like, I, I think I'm going to, like, demand more yeah. money halfway through the movie and seraphim uh-huh. caught wind of this and just kind of wrote him out i think killed him off so that yeah. so yeah there, there's another weird uh you know you, he has a bigger part and then he just disappears from the movie uh, his character. well and i is this the one where seraphim tricked him into doing one more day yeah. <laughs> and then and then like <laughs> halfway through his last shot, Jason realized that he was being killed off of his he was like, God damn it. It's <laughs> like, wait, why, why is there a guy who looks like me in the same clothes? It's like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And th- this also um th- when this was released as the death of Bruce Lee, uh, there was a photo of Bruce Lee on the poster in the coffin. And yeah, and then when it With was his, like death mask, his right. like yeah, yeah, and and Seraphim said he regretted that, you know, put, putting that on the poster. That's why the Black Dragon's Revenge. It's the same artwork. It's the same Neil Adams artwork, but uh, but the the death mask is gone. The photo, yeah, because um, it's no uh, longer yeah. called the Death of Bruce Lee. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to point out also Neil Adams did most of the artwork for Seraphim's movies, like Jerry Bledsoe did most of the trailer narration for them. Oh, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Are these yeah. movies, are they produced in America as well? Like Black Dragon's Revenge, is that? 
are they overseas that they're making these? Well, uh, well, Black Dragons, yeah, there were co-productions with Yang uh, Yang Chi uh, Films. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are they shot, um, or the, is it just depends? Well, the Black oh, no, Dragon no. and the Black Dragons were Re- Revenge were were shot in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Super Weapon and Death Promise were shot in New York. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, you you notice that just like th- there's more urban environments than in traditional, you know, kung fu movies that you would expect. So I, I kind of found that refreshing. You're getting to see, mm-hmm. you know, old school New York City, but that's more Death Promise than the right. others. The others, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It was, it's um well because they're contemporary, um they're contemporary movies, whereas you know the mm-hmm. Shaw Brothers and you know a lot of the Golden Harvest movies were um were period pieces, costume Definitely. yeah costume films. Yep. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so just to pick up from there, I mean, the next big film here, Chris, would you say it's Death Promise or? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, oh, following oh. up on uh, on uh, which uh, the Death of Bruce Lee was another hit. The Super Weapon was not, uh, and Death Promise. Uh, Seraphim decided he was going to shoot a movie in New York with these New York martial artists that he had worked with on the previous movie and. And is the documentary. there a reason Ron's not in this one? Um, I I don't know. I, I yeah, I don't okay. know why he's not in it. Because I, mean, I was he, hoping he was the team would stay to together. Be, right. Well, yeah. he was supposed to be in in Black Samurai, so it's possible okay. that you know maybe he was still conflict. Right. Uh, yeah. Although I, I I don't know if that's if that's the reason why he may, maybe was competing or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and so and so Death Promise was going to be originally called The Slumlords. And I love this movie beyond reason. Um, it starts out I with do. its own theme song. Such a I'm great a, theme song. Yes. Yeah. And, oh, and we, you, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, we had that ready in our, uh, in our other app. We were absolute. We don't miss an opportunity to play a amazing theme song like that one is. So I'll, I'll drop it. You we'll have it to add it in more. after the fact. Yeah. yeah, please. I know. Not I think the whole movie, like Super Fuzz or something. I just want to hear that every few minutes. <laughs> and also, the, the movie... bad thing is, I've been walking. Oh, I just say, I've been walking around my house for like the past week, just randomly being like, It's gonna blow your mind. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, You just you gotta see it. <laughs> and, you know, and I always was like, This title makes no sense until Chris pointed out to me that. It came out after Death Wish, and a promise is a lot more serious than a wish. So, (laughs) but basically, it's a movie about Charles's dad and Charles live in a tenement, and they're trying to be evicted by greedy landlords. And it opens with some of the best voiceover. I'm just going to read a little bit because I love it so much, but. In large yes. U.S. cities, millions of people live a life of poverty in old, run-down apartment buildings. The poor tenants trapped in these buildings must put up with constant harassment by greedy landlords who want to throw them out for higher rents. These rich slumlords go to ruthless extremes to evict poor tenants, and nothing seems to stop them. When you can't afford to move, even a rat-infested tenement can be called home. But when landlords turn off your heat, water, gas, and even your electricity to force you to move out, there's only one thing to do. Fight. 
this is the story of such a struggle and it's so a blast um so charles co-stars with speedy leacock who was one of george cofield's students people keep referring to themselves by their own names rather than their characters names the boom mic is always in the frame it is amazingly shoddy but also amazingly passionate and one of the things that i really like about this movie is Charles is, you know, lost his home when he was a kid, right, in San Juan Hill. He then, right before he made this movie, he got in a fight with his landlord who was jacking up the rent and lost his dojo. Um, the landlord wow. broke the lease and he lost the dojo and had to sort of move in and share another one. He was furious about it and took it really personally. Then he makes this movie, you know, and it's kind of like, and one of the things is, you know, who do you hate more than landlords, especially in New York City, oh, where they yeah. are scum of the oh, earth? Yeah. I remember a, a real estate lawyer saying to me once, he's like, listen, I always thought there was no lower form of life than pond scum until I started working with New York City landlords. And it really is true. <laughs> I've only met, I've lived yeah. here since 1992. And I have met one landlord who I would piss on if they were on fire. Like it is, it attracts the worst human beings on earth. And in the seventies, when there was so much less regulation and so much less tenant protection and you weren't white, it was really, really bad. And so you have, I have to appreciate this movie where it's hard is, which is like, who yes. does everyone hate? They're landlords. I also have to appreciate how ridiculous yeah. this movie is. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> You've got the the yakuza um, somehow, right? yeah, <laughs> with, with the cat, like like, like his Blofeld cat, yeah, off screen, right? Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> the, the cat that's never around in his scenes with with uh, you know, with Charles Bonet, but it just shows up when he's the bad guy. Yeah, right, yeah, right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's so much. I love I mean, all the times. Yeah. All, the, all the times when when characters narrate like what they're doing, like in the the yes. highlight, the archery scene, and the like goon comes out. He's like, "I'm gonna look for my boss." Wait, no, I'm not. I'm gonna shoot some arrows. <laughs> or like the two cops that are outside of that room have this this conversation. You're like, no one has this con. They're like he's. A good guy no he's a bad guy <laughs> like it's literally like they're just it's like second grade like inner dialogue but they're speaking it oh yeah just oh man i love it i love it very little in this movie resembles human behavior <laughs> yeah. that is exactly what i thought when i watched it it was like oh yeah no this is an alien translation of a melvin van, van Peebles. that's all i can think of when i'm watching it <laughs> yeah and you know it, it's funny like seraphim knew i think he had a dog because he talks at the time he was making this in an interview about how he got in the inner the, the editing room and he really went hands-on with this and mm -hmm. tried to save it um and there was i mean he did his bad i think he made it a better movie uh mm -hmm. ultimately but i don't think it did well chris um, it did. It did. Okay. Yeah. I, I, th I think, um, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a hit, but it wasn't a, a money loser, like the super weapon. It, it just went out and played and, and, you know, did okay. And that was it. Um, it, it it's one that I, 
he didn't take out, you know, as a re-release, uh, you know, after its first run, it, it just played as a second or third feature, but it, it wasn't one, it, it didn't do so badly that they changed the title of it and put it out under a different title. I think it did well enough. I mean, it's a strong title, Death Promise. So, um, you know, and it had a great ad campaign too. Um, but, you know, it's, it's oh, yeah. not, not the type of thing that is going to play in, in, you know, outside of you know, urban action theaters, really. And, you know, for white audiences or sort of white movie theaters, Charles was prominently featured on the poster, even though he's he's Puerto Rican. But for uh, black right. city, uh, for black theaters, but also for black newspapers, they had an ad that featured Speedy Leacock, and it has a great tagline: <laughs> "Warning to the rich: Get off our backs! If you're a fat, filthy, rich <laughs> landlord, you'll burn in hell, and I'm going to send you there." <laughs> so good. Yep. So I stand up and good. cheer. How many Who doesn't want to see that movie? Right. Oh, yeah. How many apartments mm -hmm. need that just on the wall? That's amazing. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. exactly. I want to buy an apartment building in New York City just to have that in a mural in the lobby. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think um, a few of my friends who are into uh, good cause eviction uh, activism right now, and I'm like, oh, I just want to mail this movie to them. I'm like, oh, yeah. I love this thing. This is fantastic. <laughs> um. But and so that was, I mean, would you say that was kind of the end of the heyday for Ron and Charles, the late 70s, Chris? Yeah, I mean, Ron did did some more movies and he got some big some big stunt and choreography gigs in the 80s. Like he worked on The Last Dragon yeah. and um, yeah. yeah, some some uh, FX like th things that shot in yeah. New York City. Uh, Sometimes his name will turn up in, in the uh, in the credits. But yeah, as far as uh, a big starring role, I mean, he's in Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. <laughs> oh, well, let's talk about <laughs> that. Stuff. I think yeah. that needs some, some, some love. What year is that? That's 80? That was 80, yeah. Um, and that was, that was like Terry Levine's answer to the real Bruce Lee, which was Seraphim's uh, another documentary sort of uh yeah <laughs> uh yeah the, the way that came about was they uh seraphim got hold of some uh some of the uh early bruce lee movies and uh that dick randall brought to him and said oh yeah i, I had I, these these uh at bruce as a child actor Seraphim yeah. was like there's no kung fu nobody's gonna want to watch these and just to jump in for people who don't know bruce made a bunch of movies as a child actor they're all 50s right. black and white cantonese melodramas before he came before he moved to america mm -hmm. and so uh so seraphim came up with this idea well you know you're not going to be able to release any of these things on on their own why don't we take clips from three of them and and then get some footage of dragon lee and and you know, and then, you know, cut something together as a documentary. So they did that and it did really well. It was a big hit in 1979 for Seraphim. So Terry Levine then said, well, you know what? I, I want to do something like that also because everybody was looking for a Bruce Lee movie that actually had Bruce Lee in it. Uh, and there were, there were so few of them. I mean, he only made right. you know, four movies. Uh, right. So that was one way to do it was to get the actual Bruce Lee and then, you know, <laughs> pad it out with other, you know, faux Bruce's. So, so Terry Levine said, well, you know, we, we have, uh, we can take footage of Bruce from, uh, 
you know, from, from this uh, TV show he did, Longstreet, and, and then just dub it and then cut in some other things. And, and really, it, it, it's a spoof of <laughs> it's a spoof of Bruce Ploitation movies almost. I mean, there, there's no way to take Fist of Fear, Touch of Death seriously. No. And I mean, it's sort of made up of a couple of chunks because they shot a day of one of Aaron Banks' Oriental World of Self-Defense competitions. And when we say competitions, you know, these are like exhibitions a lot of times in Madison Square Gardens, but they feature stuff like the competitors pretending to tear out each other's eyeballs and throw them to the crowd. I mean, they're great. Um, So they have that. Then they have the old Bruce Lee movie. Then they have these framing stories with... um, God, who is it, Chris? It's um, well, they Bill Louie and Fred Bill Williamson, Louis. and yeah, Fred Williamson. That's right. right. Uh, and so, and and so then, and then it's all building up for um, uh, a, a match at the end to determine who becomes the new Bruce Lee. And it's like a match no one cares about. <laughs> it's like two welterweights, and you know, and at the <laughs> end, like they're like, oh, no one can replace Bruce Lee. So I guess this match is meaningless. Um, <laughs> It is fun. It is fun yeah. in a very sort of gorilla. Someone's changing the channel every five minutes way. Um, <laughs> but you know, one of the things that really happened in the late and and, and after Death Promise, Charles was getting some work in um, a few movies like Don't Go in the House and doing some acting. And Ron was promoting where he was coming out with like vitamins and and all the and exercise tapes and training tapes and. They were really hustling to make ends meet um, and they were competing still. And one of the things that's a big, big issue in this martial arts world that we've talked about is there was a huge East Coast, West Coast split. And the West Coast was where the magazines were like Black Belt magazine. And there were more white people basically doing martial arts and the studios were a little fancier and snazzier. And the East Coast was a lot more black and brown martial artists. Um, everything was, you know, very South Bronx, Flatbush, Washington, D.C., Baltimore. Um, and the, the magazines didn't cover them as much. And there was a real hatred between East and West Coast because it really felt like just more snobbery and racism. And there would be things like judges refusing to call points for East Coast martial artists. Charles went through a period where he was like, I decided I was going to, even though I'd get fouled, I was going to put people on the ground. He was like, I would knock them out uh, because you got to call it. It's a knockout. Like you can't argue that on technical points. And he's like, and I got violent. He says, I, I look back and I'm like, I, I really had a chip on my shoulder. I got too violent. Um, but it was this feeling that you couldn't get anywhere, that you weren't being, you were just being held, that everywhere you turned, it was a closed door. Um, and so um, that really, I think, took a toll on these guys. And the other thing that took a toll on them, and Ron and Charles have both been very open about it, is drugs. Um, yeah. You know, these guys self-medicated. Um, they had money for it if they needed it. And, you know, and, and so the 80s, 70s were fine. The 80s started getting pretty dark for both of them, I think. I don't know a lot about, I know Charles eventually in the early mid eighties moved out of New York. He's like, I can't do this anymore. And I don't know, where did Ron do much in the eighties after last dragon, Chris? Like, where was he? Do you know? Um, well, he went back into competition uh, in the early nineties. I, I think that's when the Gracie fight took place. I think that was like 94. 
yeah um, something when like he did that, that. yeah and, and he was 51 at that time um but uh, yeah i i think he was well he was writing books i, I he wrote a book on black martial artists and and he maybe did two of two volumes of that and i remember yeah. that came out in the early 90s Mm-hmm. Um, yeah mm-hmm. and yeah he was he was still teaching yeah he, he was definitely in because when i was going to the um 43rd chamber he would sometimes go in there and there were photos of him with the owner uh yeah and, and they they had oh, autographed cool. copies of his book for sale the one on black martial artists yeah um, and you know ron made what 11 movies more um yeah maybe not even that and but one of the things that always blows my mind is his movies made money. You know, they made in the millions for independent distributors. They were hugely popular and, and lucrative. But Ron never, ever appeared in a movie that was an entirely American production. They were always foreign co-productions, even when he was in like uh, uh, Polichetti, The Squeeze, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. It was a co-production with Italy. And I got to say, man, like Charles, I love Charles. I think Charles is such a good guy. He was so great with us, talking to us for this book and being really open with his story. And and he sadly passed away before the book came out. Um, But, um, and and he was very open with the fact that, you know, when he left New York, he became homeless, uh, ultimately. And and actually, and you really struggled with drugs. And actually some of his students saw a picture of him on Facebook and flew out to, I think it was New Mexico or Arizona, Arizona, Arizona where yeah. he was living on the streets. And, and they felt like they owed him so much that they wow. got him off the streets. They got him housing and he really put his life back together. He reconnected with his kids. Um, and so he had a great chunk of years at the, what he didn't know was the end of his life. He died way too young. Um, and, uh, and Ron, you know, he, Ron Charles is a great guy, and and maybe even I think a, a, a better martial artist, perhaps, or better than than Ron. Although Ron was pretty great, I, I yeah. maybe. I, but Ron was a really, I think, a good actor. I think Ron, yeah. he wasn't going to win an Oscar or anything, but he had mm-hmm. screen presence. He had, yeah, he has charisma. He he really could have gone someplace if anyone bigger had ever bet on him. I think. Um, but they never did. Yeah. You know, even though his movies were making all this money, he had all these titles in, in karate, even though he had proof that he could do this again and again. And he worked hard. He just never he could never get he could never get out. You know, he could never he could never get out of this to the next big thing. And for Charles, it was the same thing. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. the saddest part for me was, you know, the thing I do when I discover something I love is, well, movie-wise, I go to IMDb and, oh, I'm going to go see their filmography. And like you said, both of those guys, it's it's single digit, digits, double digits. I, I think like Ron's at 20 and Charles is at like 11 as far as yeah. like filmography. Mm. And it's just like, oh, like, do you think like, you know, obviously because the Kung Fu boom kind of, you know, fizzled out in the 70s, but it would have been nice to see them just in, in even just make a transition to action movies the 80s were big on action so well, ron was, was in the squeeze ron was in the squeeze and charles was in don't go in the house which was a horror movie so they were starting to branch uh-huh, out yeah. you know and um and i think you know i think part of it is they might have been their own worst enemies in some cases um gotcha. uh and i also mm. think you know not a lot of producers are willing to take a chance on them you know it's right movies are one of those things where you do martial arts that's what you do and i think you know 
Ron right. demonstrated he could do a character bit in an action movie. Mm-hmm. Charles demonstrated he could do a character bit in a horror movie, but they never got a whole lot of chances. Yeah. Um, right. th- there was a martial artist in New York named Malachi Lee, who was really big. I mean, he competed, uh, he competed against Joe Lewis and I think Chuck Norris. Um, he, he was, he was big time. And uh, he was in one movie called force four and mm. He, he's not nearly as charismatic as Ron Van Cleef. Uh, so you can see why he never, well, he also died the following year. Um, talk about damaged people. He, he would sleep with a loaded pistol under his pillow and, and, and one night it went off in, in 1975 oh. and, he, and he died. But, oh, um, but yeah, I mean, you, you, and he was a big guy too. He was like six five, and that was one of the reasons why he was so successful in the ring was because uh, people just couldn't get near him uh, when he would kick. But uh, but yeah, you look at, you look at his acting in Force Four. <laughs> pretty much everybody's acting in Force Four, <laughs> and, and you can just see why uh, you know Ron Van Cleef got the gig, even though he's dubbed in that first movie in the Black Dragon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, Right, right. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things is, I mean, I agree with you. Sometimes you look at these guys' stories and their filmographies, and it gets depressing. But the glass half full version of this, I always think of, is these guys had the deck stacked against them from the word go. They came out of their mother's womb, and they came into a world that was not rooting for them. And look how far they went. I mean, we're sitting here talking about them, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You yeah. know, um, the movies are there. They're, the movies have them at their prime. You can always see them, you know, Black Dragon's Revenge, Death Promise. I mean, you know, it's, it, that stuff is there and it's a blast. And I will take I will take those over a lot of movies where people pretend to have foreign accents and talk about their feelings. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> so it's, but it is, and you know, and Ron's still out there, man. I feel like- yeah. Ron's mm-hmm. job these days is being Ron, and you know he's earned it. He's must be how sure. old now, Chris? Uh, sure. I think he's going to be eighty this year. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it's funny, you know, Ron is still, you know, these habits die hard. When I was going to interview him, he was really, he didn't let me interview him because he was just suspicious. What's this white guy want with me? You know, <laughs> and um, someone, one of his students, wanted to give me one of his books so I could see it. And Ron's like, no way, we charge full price. And it's like, you know, <laughs> I get it, man. You know, it's um, Aretha Franklin. She plays at the White House. And when she goes on stage, she has her purse with her because she came up on a con- on a touring circuit where if you left it in your dressing room, it got stolen. These right. are habits of a lifetime. Sure. And they're the habits you develop when you're the only person looking out for yourself, you yeah. know, and you just can't trust other people. I get it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are great. And it's cool that he had that role with Last Dragon, too. That's yeah, yeah, and its own it has become its own legend. So, mm-hmm. you know, with and, one of his students as the star. Yeah. yeah. Time out. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, who, by the way, I know Dom had mentioned to us that he met uh, Time Act and said, oh, he's a really nice guy, really friendly and all that. So, yep. You know? Yeah, he is. Yeah, I, I, uh, I met with him for the book and interviewed him nice nice well i know that's a movie that we'll have coming up on our show so we're super excited to talk about that one but 
uh, guys, I think that we've, you know, we've covered a lot of bases here. Yeah. Um, you know, we really appreciate the both of you coming on and joining us tonight. Uh, this is really fun. Love to like have you on again sometime. If you have Thank like you. another sure. topic you'd love to talk about. Yeah, um, this was an adventure. I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a blast. Before we let you go, yep. um, there are some folks that may not have read the book yet. Do you want to do you want to give us a, a plug oh, yes. for the book, the Bible, the Holy Bible of oh, yeah. martial arts yeah. film? Yeah, I mean, These Fists Break Bricks, How Kung Fu Movies Came to America and Changed the World, I think, is the subtitle. Uh, but <laughs> swept it is, America. Swept America, thank you. Um, <laughs> but it is a history of Kung Fu movies coming to America. We start in, you know, 1900 when freaking Teddy Roosevelt was doing jujitsu in the Oval <laughs> Office. And we end after The Last Dragon when these movies really, you know, got kind of snuffed out for a while and didn't reemerge until the late 90s when Jackie Chan had his finally, after trying to break into America so many times <laughs> in the 80s, finally broke big. Um, but uh, the book is lavishly illustrated with posters and ads and stuff from Chris's collection, which is unhealthily large. <laughs> um, it, it, and Chris was able to dig up amazing stuff. I mean, we've got posters in there from movies that never wound up getting released. It's insane. Um, and the book was a blast to do. It's available everywhere. If you want links, uh, you could just go to thesefristbreakbricks.com and that links to all the where it is on all the platforms. There's an audio book. Uh, it, is, it, it lives large in the world and it can be in your hands in a mere few days. It can. Yeah, we highly recommend. Uh, like I said, it's our Bible here. We've referenced it a few times in some of the all different times. movies. We've, we will continue to. Uh, we'll definitely put the link to that in our our show notes oh, too. Thanks. So cool. we thank encourage you. everybody. Um, I also, I know Chris is a librarian. Um, yep. <laughs> you know, I love, I also, I've mentioned before, I'm a trustee on our local board here. So I love libraries. Mm -hmm. So any of our library people listening, Hey, this would be a great addition to your collection. So, uh, you know, your book distributor, contact them and get that in the collection so that it's available for the community. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, this is a lot of fun, guys. Again, really appreciate you taking the time and introducing us to kind of this, uh, uh, you know, some of these actors and some of this, uh, you know, kind of the, the unsung heroes that, that mm -hmm. we played. Yeah, oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, this this is great. The I like I said, I loved, I loved all. I mean, I love it. Just weird stuff. Like I loved it in the Black Dragon in the beginning when they're in like the countryside. The mm -hmm. soundtrack is like this, like. <laughs> western um, dixie yeah. oh yeah <laughs> i'm like it's mm -hmm. wild it's just stuff like that that again the eyeball gouging and the it's yeah these are thank thank a, you for introducing us to them it, it, it was yes. oh you're welcome pleasure. and thank you very Our much pleasure. for your time thanks yeah. for having thank us you. guys yep. thank you very Take much care. thank you fellas thanks. too have a good night you too yeah, you too this has been a presentation of the lunch Door podcast network